This message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. At the end, we will give information about how to contact us to receive a copy of this or other messages. Well, we're studying First uh, Corinthians. And so if you'll take your Bibles and turn to First Corinthians chapter 1. There is a a chance that we'll finish the Thanksgiving section tonight. The more more I study this book, 1 Corinthians, the more I just marvel at how wonderfully rich it is. We're going to read, starting in verse 4, the Apostle Paul says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you're not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So last week we started the uh, Thanksgiving section after dealing with the uh, with the salutation, and I noted that that Paul has a very distinct purpose in this Thanksgiving. And remember, the idea of a Thanksgiving section was was very very common in ancient uh, Greco-Roman letters. All right, so there was typically a Thanksgiving section. Uh, But for Paul, Paul doesn't just use uh, the Thanksgiving section as a structural formality. For Paul, the Thanksgiving section means something. It's significant. He, he, He wants to convey something in this, and there is a, a genuine sense of pastoral and apostolic thanks for the Corinthians and also instruction. And uh, that instruction that we get in the thanksgiving is actually going to serve as a reminder to to kind of begin to to redirect the Corinthians into into the proper focus that they need to have. And so you can think of of the thanksgiving as as Paul anticipating a number of issues that he's going to deal with with the Corinthians that will help, in a sense, realign them and refocus them on the things that really matter. And uh, I, I, would, I would remind us that um, so much of preaching and teaching is actually just reminding us of things that we already know. Telling, uh, <laughs> preaching is basically me telling you stuff you already know. Hopefully, every once in a while, you go, hey, I learned something. Uh, but if, if you think that every sermon or every Bible study is going to be uh, some revelation of learning something new, then you don't understand the function of preaching and teaching. Preaching and teaching functions to remind you of things that you already know and to stir you up to get back on track. And that's what we're here to do, right, as we study God's Word. And so for Paul, the Thanksgiving section is going to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, I pointed out in the Thanksgiving section, every verse has Christ in it, all right? Every verse. And uh, he will also focus as, with bookends the grace of God. And, uh, and so Paul says, I thank my God always for you. Uh, Paul actually saw the Corinthians as challenging as they were, as gifts from God. Paul's not being sarcastic and saying, you know what, I thank God for you. Yeah, right. I think you're actually a bunch of jerks, but I'm really thanking God for you, at least in word. That's not the way it works. Paul is actually very sincere. He is sincerely giving thanks, notice, not to the Corinthians. (laughs) He's giving thanks to God for what God has done in the Corinthians and what he will do. Paul's confident that God's going to do something in their life and that he is going to realign them and straighten them out. And so this is a Godward thanksgiving. And last week, we really focused on the fact that, that there are people in our lives that are difficult. There are people that are challenging. And yet, if they have a common Savior and a common faith, 
that we ought to be able to give thanks to God for them because in a very real sense, the most important things are the things that bind us together. And so Paul says, I thank God always for you because of the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. And what Paul's doing is he's redirecting them back to the time of their calling, to that time where God initially gave them uh, his saving grace. And uh, I, would, I would ask you to th- you know, think about that time in your life when, when God's grace was given to you in Christ Jesus. Now, some of you can remember that as clear as a bell because there was for you darkness and then light. Uh, for others, it was more of a gradual thing. But Paul is actually reminding these Corinthians, I thank God for the grace that was given to you in Christ Jesus. Now, the reason he does this is not only because he's sincerely thankful for the grace of God that was given to them, but when we start to become self-absorbed, self-centered people, it is the grace of God in Christ that becomes eclipsed first. And so Paul is reminding them. And then Paul actually says that part of the thanksgiving is that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and knowledge... Now, to be sure, he's referring to the gifts at this point, which were most prized by the Corinthians. And he's not, he's not criticizing the gifts. And, and in fact, he will criticize later their attitudes and abuse of the gift. But he could actually just genuinely, sincerely give thanks to God that, that God's grace was at work in their lives in these gifts. And then, just as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, So the idea is is that the demonstration of these gifts is a demonstration that as I preach Christ to you, Christ crucified, Christ resurrected, you believed by the grace of God. And as you believed by the grace of God, that testimony of Christ awakened you in such a way that the result was a church that now exists in Corinth, which now exists for a testimony to Christ. And so they receive the testimony of Christ, become the testimony of Christ. That brings us now to the the last part of the thanksgiving, verses 7 through 9. And Paul says in verse 7, So that you're not lacking in any gift. Now, Paul is, actually, this is, we're picking this up just in the middle of the flow of a sentence. Actually, the, the sentence is, is, is quite long, but now what Paul's doing is, Paul's now talking about the result or, or the outcome of the grace that was given to them in Christ and them being gifted in all speech and all knowledge. And what is that outcome? Well, they are not lacking in any charismata. That's the word. Now, if you, if you know, we, we actually have a word that's derived from that, and we would say charisma. That would be a word that is derived from charismata. Um, the word charismatic would be derived from the term charismata. But here's, here's the amazing thing is that so many of our translations take this term charismata and then automatically jump to Spiritual gift. Okay. In fact, notice the way the NAS does it, so that you're not lacking in any gift. What about the uh, ESV, uh, Mr. ESV user? Any gift. So I think the uh, NIV probably says spiritual gift. Uh, most of our translations actually go this way. And what's happening, by the way, is they are taking the um, material from 12 to 14 and reading it back into the word charismata. Well, there's, I think that that is actually wrong. Um, charismata just simply means something like, like this, um, that which has been freely given. That's all charismata means. It doesn't mean, quote, spiritual gift. In fact, Paul only uses the term spiritual with the term gift in one place. It's not here. Charismata just simply means grace which has been 
given. And so I would say that in this introductory section, uh, Paul is, is, is in a sense giving uh, at this point something that is a much broader thanksgiving than just their so-called spiritual gifts. Okay? In fact, if there's anything the Corinthians are proud about, it's their spiritual gifts. And in fact, they themselves will not refer to spiritual gifts in terms of charismata. They will refer to them as spiritual things or things of the Spirit. All right? And so I would, I would suggest that what Paul's doing here is he is actually giving thanks that they were not lacking in any necessary provision of grace. God had given them everything that they needed in terms of his grace. In other words, charisma, I think, should be understood here as the totality of what God had freely granted to them in Christ, which was unmerited generosity to ill-deserving people. And again, if you're the Corinthians and you think you're all that and a bag of chips... You need to be knocked down a peg or two. And Paul is reminding them, you know what? I'm thanking God because the result of him working in your life is that you're not lacking now in anything that you need from God's grace. I mean, the Corinthians would thought, and we'll see this clearly as we progress, of the gifts of the Spirit as a demonstration, not as God's grace, but actually as a demonstration of their own spirituality. The gifts of the Spirit for the Corinthians were status symbols. They weren't actually manifestations of grace. And Paul here is actually just saying, you're not lacking everything that you need in terms of God's grace in this life. God has abundantly provided for you. And you know what is true of the Corinthians is true for you. You're not lacking in anything that you need that's provided for you by grace. And so you might be in a tough marriage, and Paul would say, you're not lacking in any provision of grace. You might have a tough job. You're not lacking. If you're a child of God, you're not lacking in any provision of grace. That you will never ever live a day of your life where you get to the end of that day and you say, you know what, Lord, I could have used a little more grace than you were willing to give me. That day will never come. You will never be able to say, you know what, Lord, I needed just, I needed like a a half an ounce more grace, and I asked and you didn't give it to me. Paul says, you're not lacking. You're not lacking. All that you need in terms of the grace of God, God has abundantly provided for you. Now, here's the the, the neat part of the verse, is it says... um, New American Standard says, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. I would, I would take this as while eagerly waiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. For those of you that love grammar and can't get enough, I would take this as a temporal participle, okay? And you might want to write that down just in case there's a test in heaven. So think about the way this actually fits together. You're not lacking in any grace provision while you are eagerly awaiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, why is this actually so important? Well, because it's a reminder to these rascally Corinthians that they actually have not yet arrived. They have not yet arrived. There is something in the future. And that is the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. They should actually be, Paul, Paul, Paul is implying actually quite directly, you should be eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And while you're eagerly waiting, there is nothing lacking in what you need to wait all the way to the end. I love what um, 
David Garland wrote, he says, instead of standing on their dignity as those enriched with speech and knowledge, they should be standing on tiptoe in anticipation of what is to come when God will establish or confirm them blameless on the day of the Lord. And so here the Corinthians strutting around like peacocks demonstrating all of their multicolored gifts and how magnificent and spiritual and wonderful they are. And Paul's saying, you don't have anything lacking regarding the grace of God while you're eagerly looking for what? The revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you might be waiting for your next paycheck. Some of you might be waiting for a lull in some storm of life. But what we should all be eagerly awaiting is the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we should be waiting for. Why? Because the revelation, uh, the, the apocalypsis. So what's the last book of the Bible called? It's called the apocalypse. Why is it called the apocalypse? Because apocalypsis means the unveiling, the revealing. And so here, Paul says um, that revealing, that apocalypse of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is his final victory. It's the unveiling of Christ himself. That is what we're looking forward to. And, uh, and so here are the Corinthians, and we've, we've used this term before. They had what we would call an over-realized or an over-spiritualized eschatology. In other words, they thought they had arrived at a certain level of spirituality and spiritual maturity that put them up at, on a level that was, that was really, uh, for some of them, even higher than Paul. And Paul is reminding them, listen, we have not yet arrived because Christ has not yet come. Now, in the New Testament... There are basically three different words that are used interchangeably for Christ's second coming. There is this apocalypsis, the revelation of Christ. There is uh, the parousia, the appearing of Christ, or more technically, the presence of Christ. And then there is the epiphania, that is the appearance, or um, in fact, we get our word epiphany, right, of Christ. And so what we have here, actually, with Paul is, is, is right out of the gate, right in the Thanksgiving section, an emphasis here on, you know what it is, right? The grace which has already been given to you that will sustain you until the not yet of his appearing, In other words, what Paul is doing is is he is emphasizing, in a sense, the already and the not yet for the Corinthians. They are waiting for the not yet, which is the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. But they have confidence in the already because God has supplied them with all of the grace necessary until that day. And so in this time of waiting, God has supplied us with sufficient grace. Now, let me just tell you that the Corinthians, the Corinthians had a little problem, which we've already alluded to many times. And that is, if you believe that you've already arrived... If you believe you've already achieved the, a level of spiritual maturity and even perfection, what awaits you in the future? What awaits you in the future? And so for us as the people of God, we realize that what we experience right now in this life, requires the grace of God, the provision of divine grace every single day until that final day. And so we're awaiting that final day with the full confidence that whatever I need to get there 
God will provide. Paul, who's very fond of his relative pronouns, says, who also shall confirm you or establish you to the end. Now, it is a little interesting because the who there in verse 8 is, is somewhat ambiguous. Um, is it a reference to God or is it a reference to Christ? And, and in one sense, there's, you know, that's, you know, there's not a big difference, right? But it's probably, even though Christ is closest to the who, it probably more logically is a reference to the Father. And so it is, it is the Father who will confirm us to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> God will confirm you, establish you until the end blameless. Wow, really? Like, blameless? I mean, how does this work, right? I mean, now, understand, first of all, what Paul is saying is, Paul is saying that, that, that that what God establishes will endure to the very end to which he's established it, okay? So in other words, this is just another way of saying that the one who began the good work in you will do what? He will complete it, all right? So God is going to confirm or establish you, but here's the funny part, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So maybe Paul actually had like a mental lapse and forgot that he was writing to the Corinthians. Maybe he thought he was writing to the Philippians. Well, I don't... I don't think that the word blameless is actually a moral word. I don't think that blameless is being used by Paul in the sense of being morally blameless. I don't think that Paul is using the term blameless to mean without reproach regarding any sin. I don't think that's what he means. I think that he's actually using the word blameless in a legal sense or in a forensic sense or, uh, if you will, as a verdict word. By the way, blameless can be a verdict word. It's a word of acquittal. It's a word of not guilty. It's a word of declaring innocence. Declaring righteousness. So I think that actually that what Paul is saying is that on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, which of course is the day of judgment and the day of salvation, that all who are in Christ on that day, this is magnificent really, will be confirmed unimpeachable. You know what we're talking about, right? What we're talking about is justification. That's what we're talking about. Now, justification, as we've said so many times, has two parts, right? So so if if you can recite this by, by memory, by heart, then... That's great, but just let me, just indulge me for a second. Justification has two parts. The first part is full and complete pardon for all of my crimes. Full and complete forgiveness for all of my sins, right? That's part of justification. It is a full and complete pardon. But it is more than that. It is more than just erasing the uh, black marks on the ledger of demerit. It is erasing all of those, but it is also then positively imputing to me, that is charging to my account, the perfect righteousness of God's Son. What that means is not that God makes you righteous, 
That's true in terms of a process of transformation, but that's not what justification is. Justification is not God making you righteous. God's justification of you is him declaring you to be righteous. Okay? So, Dave's retired now, but it always makes for a good illustration. If Dave actually... Um, uh, gave a verdict on on somebody in his court, and he said, you're guilty as charged, would that verdict make that person guilty? No. What makes them guilty? (laughs) The crimes that they've already committed, okay? The verdict itself doesn't make anything. It's a declaration. If he says, not guilty... Okay? He's not making them innocent. He's making a declaration, a legal declaration. Here's the amazing thing about justification is that what God does is God says. God takes, God takes an ordinary rotten to the bone sinner like Brian Borgman brings him under conviction, brings him to the foot of the cross, brings him to put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and and at that moment of faith, there is an illegal act that takes place, and that legal act is, I have pardoned all of your crimes, they've been nailed to the tree, you bear them no more, right? We sing it every month, right? We sing it, and you should, you should be so happy when you sing, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I what? I bear it no more. So at that moment, that's what God does for me. He says, I took all those sins, and I nailed them to the tree. I nailed them to the cross. My son paid for those sins, Brian Borgman. You don't have to pay for them. But now, you also are in need of something else. You're not just in need of your sins being washed away. You're in need of having righteousness, which is acceptable to me, by which I can receive you into my presence. And so how does God do that? Well, this is the great exchange. My sin is put on Christ, and Christ's righteousness is put on me. (laughs) That's justification. Remember, my uh, old pastor, Jim Andrews, was preaching on justification one day, and he had somebody come up on the platform, and he said, here, and he put his suit coat over him. And uh, he says, now, is, is this yours? He goes, no, it's, it's yours. He says, but it's over you, right? He says, yeah. And he looked at us, and he said, that is exactly what Christ does for us. He clothes us in his righteousness so that when God sees us, he not only sees somebody whose sins have been forgiven, but somebody who's clothed in a perfect, acceptable righteousness before the holy God. By the way, that is the most important thing you could ever know in this life. Period. I don't care if you know about the S&P. I don't care if you know calculus. I don't care if you know computers like way better than I do, which isn't hard. The most important thing is to, to know, is to know what it is to be right with God. Okay? And so, to be confirmed blameless, what I'm saying is, That on that last day, I'm going to be confirmed in a verdict. Now, if all my sins have been washed away and I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ, then there is, what what can God do to me in terms of punishment? You're so timid. You better not be this timid on the last day. Nothing. He can do nothing to me. Why? Because Christ became the curse of the law for me, right? Christ became my condemnation. There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing left for me to pay. Do you understand that? There's nothing left for me to pay. 
All right? So there I am. Now, when, when does that reality matter the most? Well, the answer is on judgment day. (laughs) Don't you think that's when it's going to matter the most? You're going to stand before the judgment bar of God and give an account. And when will it matter most that you have actually been declared blameless in the sight of a holy God on judgment day? And so here's justification. Justification is the last day verdict of blamelessness, which is mine right now by faith. How do I know I'm justified? I mean, can't you tell? Don't I look justified, don't I? Okay. I mean, the, if the beard doesn't nail it, I don't know what will. The answer is, I don't look any different than my neighbor, other than she's like a 79-year-old widow. I don't look any different in terms of like, or I don't look any different than my other neighbors. I don't look any different from any other human being. So how do I know I'm justified? I know I'm justified by by faith. On the last day, being confirmed blameless till the end to the day of Christ Jesus means that I will actually be justified on that day by sight. The verdict becomes public. Right now it's mine and it is mine 100%. By the way, I am no more justified right now than I will be on that last day. And I will no more be justified on that last day than I am right now. Okay? And so, here is this glorious thing. So, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, our justification becomes sight. And so, um, again, can you imagine, here are these Corinthians thinking, <laughs> you know, how special they are, how gifted they are. You ever notice when people think that they're gifted, that they're usually a real pain. Okay. Yeah, like the worst thing that ever happened to me was I was seven years old and I went and did all these tests all day on a Saturday and they came back and they told my parents, he should be in the gifted child program. That was the worst thing that ever happened to me. I mean... I didn't really know what they meant by gifted, but it sounded very good. And it became a source of, I'm just, I'm obviously better than my cousin Randy, who is not in the gifted child program. And, and as far as my sister, she, she does not have a chance to get into this gifted child program. So here are these, here are these Corinthians. We are so gifted. God must be so happy that we're on his team. And Paul says, you know what? Your blamelessness is an act of divine grace. And it's God himself that will confirm you to that day. It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with your merit. It has nothing to do with your works. It, even, it doesn't even have anything to do with, with, with your spirituality. What it has to do with is the work of Jesus Christ, period. Now, you want to get confirmed to the end, right? Verse 9 is the key. The Greek text says faithful is God. Faithful comes first because it's in the emphatic position. God is faithful. That God is trustworthy. God is reliable. God is consistent. God is dependable. And so, um, now, for the Corinthians, you know, this probably didn't, uh, like, grip them right away. But I would say, how in the world do I know I won't lack any grace until Christ returns? And the answer is, God is faithful. How do I know I actually will be kept and confirmed until the last day and be given a blameless verdict? And the answer is, because God is faithful. That better be the cornerstone of your theology. 
How in the world do you know that, that uh, not only tonight, but maybe 10 years from now, or maybe 20 years from now, that when you lay down to close your eyes and go to sleep, that you actually will go to sleep still believing in Jesus? Here's how you know. It's not because you're awesome. It's not because your faith is sterling. It's because God is faithful. God keeps his own, and he keeps them to the end, and it is his faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. You know, we are so foolish, aren't we? We want to take credit for stuff that we just shouldn't be taking credit for. God is faithful. God himself chooses to constrain himself by his own pledges, promises, and commitments to his people. Even God's faithfulness to you, by the way, isn't even determined by your faithfulness to him. Oh, how would you like that if that was the arrangement? You think that'd be a good arrangement? God says, you know what, Arnie, I will be faithful to you as long as you're faithful to me. That would last like, it'd be gone yesterday and the day before. Same for all of us, right? In fact, isn't it 1 Timothy 2, verses 12 to 14? Even when we're faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. And so Paul says, how do you know you're going to have all the grace necessary to the revelation of Jesus Christ? How do you know you're going to be confirmed blameless all the way to the end of the day of Christ? And the answer is this, God is faithful. How do you know you're going to make it to the end? God is faithful. What does it mean God is faithful? It means God has committed himself to you, not because of you, but because of himself. God actually pledges and commits himself to us on the basis of his own character. That's what faithfulness is. It is the integrity of God that secures his faithfulness towards us. It is is the work, the blood, the merit of Jesus Christ that secures his faithfulness towards us. How in the world do I know that God's going to be faithful to me tomorrow? And the answer is because Christ Jesus died for me and secured that faithfulness for me. God can no more be unfaithful to me than he can be unfaithful to his son. Think about that. God can no more be unfaithful to you than he can be unfaithful to his son. Is he ever going to be unfaithful to his son? You better believe he will not ever be unfaithful to his son. Nor will he be unfaithful to you. God is faithful through whom you were called. What's Paul doing here? He's reminding them of their conversion. When they were called, through whom you were called, the faithful work of God begins in our calling. It's completed until the day of Christ. And notice this, through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, I want to give you a, um, a little different rendering from Anthony Thistleton. He says, through whom you were called into the communal participation of the sonship of Christ, our Lord. I I like that because we hear the word fellowship and you know what we think? We think meatballs. We think lentil soup, split pea soup. We think chicken wings. We think food. It's like every good Baptist thinks of food when they think of fellowship. When we talk about fellowship... I think that if Paul heard us talking about fellowship, he'd probably say, what what exactly are you talking about? (laughs) Because when I think of fellowship, what I think of is our mutual participation in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) By the way, there's nothing wrong with meatballs, right? There's nothing wrong with meatballs. Nothing wrong with chocolate cake, right? Nothing wrong with chocolate cake, nothing wrong with, you know, any of the stuff that we do together. Eating together is a great thing. And it can be a manifestation of fellowship. But understand this, the heart of fellowship is not a crock pot. The heart of fellowship is our participation, our mutual communal participation in the very life of 
Jesus Christ. I love the way Thistleton puts it. He says, he talks about us being shareholders in Christ and partners in the participation of the very life of Christ. And so, God has faithfully called us into fellowship with his son. And so, what's Paul doing here in this section? His, he's redirecting their focus. Gordon Fee says his concern is to redirect their focus from themselves to God and Christ and from an overrealized eschatology to a healthy awareness of the glory that is still future. So what can we learn from this thanksgiving? I'm going to put it in form of questions. The first is this. Am I convinced that my greatest hope is in the revelation of Jesus Christ, my Lord. I think that that's actually a very, very pertinent question for us because we look at this life around us and we look at the world around us and sometimes we can even look at the church around us and we can have a sense of hopelessness and despair. And then when we start to feel hopeless and we start to feel that despair because of uh, either the way that my individual life is or I'm, I'm looking and I'm thinking, uh, you know, um, I mean, my goodness, you know, Russia's in Syria now and, uh, and, and we're weak and uh, it, look at what China is doing, devaluing their money. And I mean, you could just, you can get caught up in all of these things. And, and, and pretty soon you can become so caught up in those things that you start thinking that your hope is going to be another presidential candidate. So let me just, let me, let me, uh, let me prophesy. I'm teasing in case you don't know. Whoever wins the next election will also end up being a failure. Okay. Even if it's your guy. Okay. Or your gal. Okay. Hopefully you don't want one gal to win, but that would immunitize the eschaton and we would all be in for the great tribulation. I'd have to change my eschatology almost immediately. No matter who gets in, guess what? They will still be a failure. Why? Because the arm of the flesh is always weak. Always. Now, there are some that are better than others, and there are others that are worse than some. Okay? We grant that. And we do want righteous leadership, okay? We want that. I'm not saying, hey, don't worry about it. Don't even vote white polished brass on the Titanic. What I am saying is, are we convinced that our ultimate hope is the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ? And I will tell you, that has been For 2,000 years, the church's blessed hope that has sustained them through times of trial and tribulation, the confidence that one of these days, one of these days, Lord haste the day when our faith shall be sight and the sky be rolled back as a scroll, and the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. That's what I'm looking forward to. Secondly, am I convinced that God has given me all of the grace provisions to live until that time? You see, the reason I have to ask that is because there's probably some of you who are questioning whether or not God has given you the necessary grace. And so I am here to tell you tonight that he has given you everything that you need pertaining to life and godliness. He has given you every spiritual blessing in Christ, in the heavenly places. You're not lacking anything. Nothing. The sufficiency of his grace is more than enough to meet your every need. 
Number three, am I convinced of the faithfulness of God? Here's, here's the key question, for me. I have to ask for me because there are some that would say, you know what, I believe in the faithfulness of God because I read it in my Bible. I believe that that's a propositional truth that God is faithful. But what I doubt is that he's faithful to me. Are we convinced that God is faithful to me? And here's, here's the thing. Am I convinced that the faithful God who called me is also the faithful God who's going to keep me? Now, I became a Christian in 1980. How old were you in 1980? Negative three, okay. Now... Bad illustration, all of a sudden. God, in however many years that is, God has not always done, in fact, he has not usually done things the way that I've suggested to him that he do things. But one thing is for sure. He has always been faithful. Even when it didn't look like faithfulness at the time, it proved to be faithfulness. God is faithful, and he's faithful for you. I've told you this story before, but I I can't help it. So Dan Haller and I are in Latvia, and we go and we visit this little pensioner lady, little Latvian lady who's was 80-something years old, and she was no more than that tall, but that was mostly because she was all hunched over. And we were talking to her, and she had walked with God for decades and decades and decades. And I thought that um, I would ask her to tell us her life story, and she said that when she was about 14 or 15 years old, the, uh, the, the, the communist revolution had happened, and... Uh, when she became a Christian, her father and brother beat her mercilessly because she became a Christian. Then they went and turned her in to the communists. And the communists arrested this 15-year-old girl and sent her to Siberia. So don't cry about your situation tonight. Okay? Sent her to Siberia where she was in a gulag for nearly 20 years. Doesn't get out until she's in her 30s, I think. Do I need to tell you what would happen to a 15-year-old girl who's being guarded by Russian soldiers in a gulag? And Dan and I sat there listening to her tell us this story through an interpreter. And both of us just in tears. And I said, what... What did you learn through all of that horror? And without hesitation, she said, what I learned is that God is faithful. And he was faithful to me every day of my life. The one who called you is faithful. The one who called you into the fellowship of his son is faithful. It's time the people of God lay hold of the character of God and the promises of God and live like God is actually alive. Luther, who was given to depression, was moping around the house one day and Katie, can't wait to meet her in heaven, Looking more forward, I think, to meeting her than Luther himself. Katie comes out in a black dress and a black veil. It's her, it is her mourning clothes. And Luther says, woman, did somebody die? And she said, yes, it's terrible. He says, who died? He, she said, God. He says, oh, you foolish woman. She says, Quit acting like he died. 
and I'll take the dress off. Finally, do I treasure our communal participation in the life of Christ? Do I actually value the fellowship of Jesus Christ personally? Do I value it corporately? You know what what our greatest treasure is as we gather here tonight? Is actually that we are partner shareholders in the very sonship of God's Son. That's what binds us together. Do we value that? Well, Paul is going to let the Corinthians have it next week. I provided, by the way, a bunch of scriptures for you on the back of your sheet on the faithfulness of God. If there's anything I want you to take away tonight, it is this, is that God is faithful. And he'll be faithful to you all the way to the end. And on the last day, you'll be given a blameless verdict because he's faithful. And so trust him. Bank your hope on his promises. And don't mope around like he's dead. Because he's not. He is very much alive. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we pray that you would use it to to just breathe life into flickering faith right now. Father, we know that there are some that are just really struggling and their faith is struggling and we pray that that this word tonight would be just a, a tonic for their souls. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you for his doing, his dying. We thank you for the confidence we have on that last day. Receive our praise and we pray, Father, for the help of the Holy Spirit to trust in you. Remind us that our God is a faithful God. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. To receive a copy of this or other messages, call us at area code 775-782-6516 or visit our website, gracenevada.com.